I'm going to ask you this morning to open up your Bibles to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Now I got a little confession for you. I've preached from Exodus 33 the last two weeks. This is going to be the third week in Exodus 33. We started out first with verses 12 through 14. We then went to 16 through 18. But I'll tell you what, this week I didn't believe. Sunday ended last week. I didn't believe that I would be going back into Exodus. And I sought the Lord all week. And guess where the Lord brought me? Back to Exodus, back to Exodus 33. As I said to you last week, if you, if you, you have not done so, you may want to consider doing so. This is a spectacular chapter filled with such rich and abundant truth. And the Lord has my eyes plastered on Exodus 33. And so if you're going to yawn and go, oh boy, Exodus 33 again, tough luck. What could I tell you? Amen. Some of you uh, may know, some of you may not know the name of William Carey. William Carey. William Carey was a Baptist preacher. He's called the father of modern missions. And William Carey lived between 1761 and 1834. And in 1792, William Carey preached a message where these words were said and uttered and subsequently became famous. William Carey said this, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Let me say that again. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. This statement combines two really phenomenal truths. Number one, the first truth is to have great expectations of God. We want to have great expectations. Expectations that are consistent with his character and the nature of God. If God is indeed transcendent, if God is indeed all-powerful, if God is indeed supernatural, all-knowing, if God is indeed, if God does indeed hear and answer prayer, right? If God desires our worship, if nothing is impossible with God, then we as believers should have great expectations from God, should we not? I mean, isn't that just a logical deduction? Let's have these great expectations. So that's the first truth. The second truth is this, and it's even better, because if God is whom the Scriptures say God is, and we affirm that that is the case, then we as believers, based on God's nature and who He is, we as believers can attempt great things for God. Can we not? That means nothing is impossible for us. It is God's enabling grace and power that enables ordinary believers to do extraordinary things, does it not? And church history screams that all throughout, and the Bible screams that all throughout, how God took ordinary men and women and did miraculous things through ordinary men and women. Hence, if we expect great things from God, we can have the ability to attempt great things for God. 
And I have entitled this message, Attempt Great Things for God. And there's only one reason. It's too long to put expect great things for God and attempt things, uh, great things for God. Listen, in Exodus 33, Moses knew this truth, did he not? As we've been studying this amazing chapter, we have seen Moses speaking to God. He has been speaking to God. He has been interceding for the people of God. He has been meeting God in the tent of meeting. And we're going to see more of this connection. And my heart's desire is that we as believers will come to the full understanding of the depth of the riches of God. And that believers can expect more from God. We can expect more from God. And if we expect more from God, then the hope is we will attempt great things for God. And that's a great truth for us. So open your Bibles again to Exodus 33, and today we'll, the main body of our text will be verse 18. And it's a very short verse. First I have to turn there. Exodus 33, 18. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. Show me thy glory. We ended last week with Moses' great expectation of God. His request of God to show him his glory. And this is the manifest glory of God. This is the manifest beauty of God. To reveal to Moses the very personal nature of God. To know him more. This is the amazing request. Considering this, now consider this. Scripture says that God spoke to Moses as a man speaketh unto a friend. So notice this. He's speaking, right? What was Moses' first meeting with God? It was the burning bush. And the burning bush not only burned and didn't consume, but what did it do? It spoke. A matter of fact, the first thing God says to Moses, take your sandals off for the place you're standing is holy ground. And God through his infinite nature, speaks to him. Listen, Moses wasn't lacking in any kind of experiences with God. Moses met God at the burning bush. Moses met God on Mount Sinai. Moses met and spoke to God in the tent of meeting. Moses was well acquainted with God personally, but it still was not enough for Moses. This is the point I want to make. It still was not enough for Moses. He sought more of God. And his request in verse 18 back can be considered the ultimate request. Now, I want to I preface something right up front, right up front. I, throughout this message and throughout these messages, are not advocating the chasing of experience. Can I say that? I don't want people to think I'm going to leave here and I'm going to go chase every experience where something miraculous occurs. But I'm going to tell you this. That to know God is to experience God. To know God is to experience God. Moses knew God. Moses experienced God. Moses experienced God supernaturally. 
He saw things that transcended the natural boundaries and the natural limitations of physical science here on earth. Moses' request begins, now notice, it begins with a desire for God. And I've said this often, the proof of the desire is in the pursuit. The proof of desire is in the pursuit. I've heard someone say in the business world, there are dreamers and then there are doers. Dreamers dream, but they never do. Doers execute. Doers are the ones who get things done. You know, there's truth about that in the kingdom of God too. There are people that will talk about, I want the blessings of God. I want this. I want God to move in my life. I want God to do the other thing. But never do. Never take the initiative. Never move forward in faith with the word of God. And consequently, they're dreamers. They're the ones that think that all of a sudden something is going to happen. But God is calling men and women to do for the kingdom of God. To take the word of God apprehended by faith and then set forth in that word. Moses' request begins with a desire for God. If we are believers in Christ, we have all a testimony, don't we, of how we came to know Jesus Christ. If we're a believer in Christ, right? You know, if you're sharing the gospel with a friend or if you're sharing the gospel with a family member, you'll be sure to tell, well, let me tell you, I used to, be this way, I used to go to that church, I used to do this, but I never knew God until I came to faith in Christ Jesus. We all have that story. And they vary. Some people remember the date, the second, the minute, the hour. Some people don't. I couldn't tell you what date I was saved. I could only tell you what I did that resulted in salvation. Right? And so we know how to describe that work of grace that took place in our heart and in our lives. And some of the stories are remarkable. You may have been an alcoholic, may have been a drug addict, you may have been a, a philanderer running around with men, women, whatever the case is. But now you don't do that anymore because the grace of God touched your life. And we know this. And we can talk about how we grew in Christ and how we came to understand the Word of God and how God sanctified us and, and took us away from our sin. But you know what the sad part is? The sad part is all too often that is where our stories begin and that is where our stories end. There's never more. Most believers' lives are more intellectual and ordinary rather than supernatural and extraordinary. We have learned to be content, and this breaks my heart. We have learned to become content with the crumbs that fall from the table rather than sitting at the banquet table of God and feasting on all the goodness and the grandeur of God and his word for us. There is so much more to life in Christ. There is more to the experience of God. And there is more to the Holy Spirit. But do we expect 
more from God? That's the question. Do we expect more? Expect things from God? And do we attempt great things for God? Moses did. Moses clearly did. Despite his experiences, Moses wanted so much more of God. Not only did he want more, but with boldness of faith, he asked God for more. But most believers, and it's sad, most believers have been taught not to seek more of God. I mean, I've heard that Many times in my life, well, don't seek more, you know, don't go chasing experience. And we're not chasing experience. We're chasing God. The proof of desire is in the pursuit. If we love God, if we desire God, then the logical conclusion is going to be what? We're going to pursue God. You know, James writes a little bit about this. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. James writes this, very simple truth. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. James in this text makes an important observation. Here he states, if we do not ask, we do not receive. So the first question that must come to your mind and must come to our minds is, are we asking God for more? Are we asking God for more of Him? Are we asking God for a deeper revelation of Himself? Are we asking God to reveal Himself and His character through the Word of God and through Scripture? If we don't ask, we're not going to receive. He goes on to state that many times we ask with wrong motives. Wrong motives. Do we ask because of pride? Do we ask because we're seeking a particular experience? Or do we ask because we want people to say, oh, that brother, that sister, oh, she's so smart in the word of God. Oh, look at that. Are our motives pure before God? If our motives are impure, guess what? God's not going to grant it. Did not our Lord put it this way in Matthew 25, 29? For everyone who has, listen to these words from Jesus Christ. For everyone who has, more shall be given. And he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Go to the first half of that verse again. For everyone who has shall more be given. If you are in Christ, if you are saved, if you are uh, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, if you go to God, you already have Christ. If you go to God and you ask for more of Christ, more of his presence, more of his spirit, then guess what? To the one who has, more shall be given. And I love the way Jesus puts it here. And he shall have an abundance. You know what the church is lacking? An abundance. Church is lacking an abundance. Church, listen, Jesus just affirmed what I've been saying for a long time. In Christ, there is never an end to the increase. 
You don't get to a maturation process where you go, this is it. This is where it caps off. There's no higher you can go. In Christ, the deeper you pursue, the more you pursue, the more that you desire. In Christ, he will give you those things. Listen, God's desire, listen, I, 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 really, I really want us to get this. God's desire is not that we get saved, we get, our, we get our ticket punched, we're not going to hell, and that we live a ho-hum existence here on earth, miserable, and we do this until we die, and then God unleashes all the good things when we get to heaven. Is there anybody here who believes that? That can't be. That's not the abundant life that Jesus talked about. That's not the satisfying that when Jesus said, I am, I am uh, the, 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 the spring of life, and he who comes to me shall never thirst again. That, that doesn't seem consistent with the gospel, nor is it consistent with the teachings of Christ. We can know God. God is designed for the believer to know God here on earth. When you are saved, that new life, that eternal life, begins the moment you are saved. And that eternal life does not mean life in continuity. It doesn't mean that we live forever, ever, ever, ever. It is the new life in Christ. And the new life in Christ is distinctly different than the physical life that we were born into. God has so much for his children. God has so much for his children. But the question is, do we ask for this? Do we desire this? That is the question. Do we expect great things from God, as William Carey said? Do we expect it? Before service, we were, I was sharing with the few people that were assembled here before prayer. And I was talking about, I've learned something new in my life at this age, which is amazing to me. But I learned that although we go through trials and though we go through tribulations, that I've learned that though friends may betray us, people may hurt us, we may go through illness, physical illness, or we may go through a hard time, we may lose our job, whatever the case may be, and the tendency is always to say, why me, why me, my, why me? I've realized something that I came to the conclusion, not because I'm a genius, but I think because I'm more ignorant than I even th know of. And that is simply this. It is not the trial. It is about our response to the trial. And how God is working godliness and righteousness in us through the trial. 
And as God does that, we grow as believers. And as we grow as believers, guess what? We get to experience some of that more of God, that enabling grace, those things that thought that they would knock us down and lay us down. Maybe you suffered loss. Maybe, maybe you thought everybody told you, you're never coming out of your bedroom again. You're going to pull the covers over your face. Maybe you're experiencing things that, that maybe some other person couldn't handle. Or maybe five years you said, if I had to go through this, I would never make it. But now you find yourself standing and you find yourself equipped and you find yourself praising God and you find yourself trusting God. How did that become? Because God has given you more. God has poured out his blessings upon you. You have experienced the quickening and the enabling of the Holy Ghost in your time of trouble. Now, the question is, do we honestly think that that only occurs in times of trouble? What if we beseech God, Father, I want you more. What if we're like Moses here in Exodus 33, 18? Father, I beg you, show me thy glory. I submit to you today that if you expect great things from God, that God will give you the grace to attempt great things for God. And so nothing... Nothing could be sweeter. Sometimes we wait for these things. Why wait? Why wait? Why not be proactive in your life and come to the Lord and say, Father, I want all that you, can, that you have for me. And beseech the Lord for that all. There's a prevalent mindset in most believers in Christ that once we're born again, our conversion becomes the height of our experience with God. That there's no more to desire of God. And you know what? Consequently, we lose that passion. Tell me this is not true. Tell me you've never heard this before. What do people generally tend to say? When that brother or sister gets saved, they're on fire. They have such a passion for God. But then eventually it cools off. Have you heard that? Have you not said one time when you got saved, man, I was on fire for the Lord. I was, I was going crazy for the Lord, right? But then I learned life. Well, I'll tell you why that happens. That happens because we're not trained. We're not believing God for that more. So the salvation experience becomes the pinnacle. It becomes the height of your experience with God. But just think about it. When you were saved and you came to Christ and you were full of that passion, you were also full of something else, right? A lack of wisdom, a lack of knowledge in the word of God. There was a certain amount of ignorance to the person of God and the things of God. So shouldn't it only be concluded that the more we press on in God, the more we learn of God, the more we learn of his attributes, we learn of God's nature, the more experiences that we have with God through failure and, and recovering from failure, shouldn't it only be logical that the more mature we grow in the word of God, consequently our experiences with God should be greater. And we should know God more. Did we not see that in the life of Moses? Remember when God went to Moses and said, Hey, you're my man. Come over here. Old 80-year-old man, come over here. 
I'm going to send you up to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and you're going to go before him, and you're going to say, hey, let my people go. God's had enough. He's heard their suffering. He's had enough. What was Moses' response? Aye, sir, I'm going to do exactly what you said. No. Moses' response was, what are you talking to me? I tend sheep. That's what I do. And you want me to go back to Egypt where I was exiled? Where I'm a fugitive? You want me to go back there? Uh, Lord, here's a few reasons. One, I'm an old man. Number two, I'm not gifted in speaking. Lord, I stutter. You know, I'm not the one. You got the wrong guy. Remember that argument between Moses and God? Moses goes. And of course, his first meeting with Pharaoh is just a resounding success, wasn't it? And he failed. Remember, he took the rod of Aaron, he laid it down, he turned it into a snake, and, and the Bible tells us that uh, Pharaoh calls for Janus and Jambres, and he says, hey, take the rod. And a demonic apparition occurs, and it turns into a snake. How's that for people who say there's no such thing as demonic power? Moses, a snake, we know what happens. He devours the other one. How many times does Moses go back then to Pharaoh? Nine more times. Let my people go. And each time God did a miraculous plague. Until the last plague, right? Until the firstborn was killed. And the children of Israel go skipping out of Egypt with the spoils of Egypt and everything else. And they're happy. Hey, praise the Lord. The horse and rider thrown in the sea. Oh, glory to God. Who is a God like our God? There's no God. Wait a second. Wait a second. What's that? A river over there? A mountain over there? A mountain over there? What's that? That column of dust coming. And they look back in the entire army of Egypt. And what did they say? We praise thee, God, because we believe that nothing is impossible with you. Is that what they do? No, they murmur and complain and say, Moses, you let us out here in the wilderness to die like a bunch of dogs. It's better to be a slave alive in Egypt than to die like dogs out here in the wilderness. And Moses makes a miraculous statement. He stands up and he says, Behold the salvation of Yahweh. The Red Sea parts. And the Bible says that they walked across on dry ground. Not muddy ground. On dry ground. Until the very last one of the children of Israel got up on the other side. And we know the rest of the story, right? The nation, the, the army of Egypt is destroyed. Matter of fact, do you know that to this day they find at the bottom of the Red Sea chariot wheels, swords, instruments from when that miracle actually occurred? The question is, where did Moses get the faith to stand up on the rock and say, Behold the salvation of Yahweh? He had failed. He had been to Pharaoh nine times. 
He was the one who was still the same Moses, right? He wasn't a great orator. He was still stuttered. He still had all of the same problems. But the grace of God in maturing Moses' life and his faith caused him to have that faith to be able to lift up Yahweh and trust God at his word. See, that's the progression of a believer. We start in the beginning. We have this exuberance, right? But the exuberance is based in in, in, in a lack of knowledge. But as we pursue Christ, what should happen? Our knowledge should increase concerning God, concerning Christ. Faith now apprehends. We're able to apprehend the Word of God. And rather than living whole hum miserable existence, we should be the people that are be able to demonstrate the glory of God in our lives and constantly be asking God for more. Listen, we see this in the Scripture. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Psalm of the sons of Korah. And I want to show you this. Psalm 42. Verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brook. Now, this is not new scripture for you. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my, my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? Here, the psalmist uses one of the strongest physiological responses in the human body, thirst. He likens that thirst, notice this, he likens that thirst for a desire for God. Let me put it to you this way. He doesn't want a taste. He has a thirst in his soul. At that thirst, he's looking for God to satisfy. And he is, he is, he is, liking it to a deer that has been pursued, has been hunted, has been running, and is now seeking the cooling springs to satisfy his thirst within. The psalmist says, my soul pants for God. You know what panting is? It's When you're dying for it. When you're yearning for it. Notice what he says. My, my soul doesn't pant. It does not thirst for thoughts about God. My soul thirsts. My soul pants for God himself. For God himself. And he describes this longing for God as that panting, as the only thing that could satisfy this thirst, that can satisfy and stop these pants, are the presence of God. Thirst is indeed the strongest response of the body. How the psalmist, how the psalmist, note how the psalmist captures these intense longings and desire for God. 
Did not our Lord Jesus Christ express the same thing? You don't have to turn there in Matthew 5, 6 when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says it is those that will be satisfied. Do you want to be satisfied in Christ? Do you want more of God? Do you want the Spirit of God and and to see God supernaturally in your life? Then we're to desire Him. Listen, our Lord makes it clear that if we have these longings, if our hearts long for God, God will indeed satisfy these longings. And the question becomes, how will God satisfy these desires? And the answer is very clear. With a deeper revelation of himself. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 145. Love this verse. I want want you to to see this. Psalm 145, that's where we read our scripture reading this morning. Don't believe me? Ask the word of God. Psalm 145, verses 18 and 19. Listen to these words. The Lord, Yahweh, right? So it's Yahweh he's speaking about, right? The Lord is near to all who call upon him. Oh, boy. For all who call upon him in truth, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord is near to all who call upon him and he, God, will fulfill the desire. If you call upon God with a desire for God in your heart, you can be assured that God will hear and God will answer and God will give you a deeper revelation of himself. Dr. Martin Laurie Jones says this, we ask for personal blessings, but how much do we know of this desire for God himself? And that is a question we all have to ask ourselves. We're crazy about asking for the blessings. We're crazy about asking for the blessings of God. But how much do we know of this desire for God ourselves? Moses knew it was not enough for Moses to have a single solitary experience with God. He sought more and God revealed more. He pursued more and God granted more. Each experience led to another until that time that Moses sought the very glory of God as we read in verse 18. Listen, church. It really is time that we begin to ask deeper questions about God. To move past our head knowledge and comforts and to pursue and pant after the finer, greater things of the Spirit to the discovery and the knowledge of God himself. Moses did, and the psalmist did. You know, an interesting thing about preaching, right? I want to share this with you. 
I usually seek the Lord. Well, I usually, I always seek the Lord and say, Father, what's the message that you have for the church? Now I'm going to let you in on a secret. The message God has for the church deals with me first. What am I saying with this? What I am preaching here is my heart. What God is speaking of, He is speaking to me, through me. The whole premise of this church, the founding principle, the founding desire that God gave me for this church was to be a church where the power and the presence of God would dwell that people would come to know God intimately, that it wouldn't be a social club, it wouldn't be a club of people that have a common set of beliefs, but it would be a gathering of people who genuinely and eagerly desire God. That has been the pursuit of my life. When we were singing Blessed Assurance during the worship time, I... It's just funny, but I was just thinking in my head when we get to that portion of the hymn that says, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. I said, that's what I want written on my coffin. That's what I want written on my headstone, if the Lord should tarry. This is my story. What's my story? Praising my Savior all the day long. That people would say of of me, man, that guy knew God. And people would say of you, uh, that all of you, they know God. I was blessed by Sister Shirley who made a comment about her daughter who was in service last week. And she said, boy, the substitute pastor really did a bang-up job. <laughs> Didn't she say that, sister? Listen, that's not about me. If we as a church really desire true revival, true personal revival, personal awakening, and if we desire corporate revival and a corporate awakening of the church, then we must desire God. Then we must be like Moses and say, Father, show me thy glory. I know I'm not worthy of the glory of God. I know that, but I am going to press in and I'm going to pursue and I'm going to go because I want all that God has. And I pray that every believer here would want all that God has for him and not settle for crumbs. Listen, there is a direct link between the knowledge of God and revival and we can only arrive at the knowledge of God as we pursue God himself. And not merely knowledge about God. And listen, here's the best part. The believer has been granted access to God through the indwelling Holy Spirit that came with the new birth. We see this in another hero of the faith. The Apostle Paul. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 10. This is the Apostle Paul. Then I may know him 
and the power of the resurrection, of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Like Moses, the apostle Paul was one with more personal experiences with the living God through the Holy Spirit that, through the Holy Spirit than most. His salvation experience was one for the books, persecuting Christians and heading to another synagogue to persecute more Christians. He is literally knocked off his horse by a light. And Jesus himself speaks to him. And he tells him he's a chosen vessel of his to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul is born again, converted from a previous hater of the church to a leading gospel preacher. Listen to the things that Paul did. Paul healed. Paul cast out devils. Paul did many great signs and wonders. In Paul's epistle to the Philippians, we see Paul's heart's desire. What is his desire? That I may know him. Now, he already knew him. He was saved. So he's not talking about being born again. What is he talking about? That I may know him. And we know what that Greek word is, right? It's gnosko. It is that personal experiential knowledge of God. It's that supernatural knowledge through personal experience through God. And Paul's cry as he talks to the church at Philippi, as he writes the church of Philippi, is what? That I may know him. That I may know the power of his resurrection. We know that Greek word there for power is the Greek word dunamis. And it speaks of that explosive force of the gospel. It speaks of that transcending power. What is he talking about? I want to know God. I want to know that transcending power of God. And the fellowship even of his suffering being conformed unto his death. I go back to the original question, have you ever asked God for a greater revelation of himself, a greater revelation of his presence, of the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Despite what we would consider as Paul's successes, Paul challenges himself to know Christ more. more. Paul specifically wants to know the power of the resurrection Paul wants to be conformed to his death, even to his death on that cross. How much more us? But in order for that to happen, we must expect great things from God. The Apostle Paul, despite all the successes in the faith and all the miracles and all the experience, Paul expected great things from God and can it, we can definitely say Paul attempted great things for God. Matter of fact, Paul goes on to say he forgets, he forgets what lays behind. All the previous past successes and or failures he forgets and he presses on for the upward call. Of Christ. Again, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones says this our trouble as Christians is that we are ignorant of God. We spend so much time feeling our pulse, taking our spiritual temperature, and considering our moods, states, and fears. Oh, if we have some conception of Him, of the 
inconceivable glory of God. Now listen to me. Listen to me. I know that some of you might be saying, Pastor, I know about Moses. I know about the psalmist. I know about the Apostle Paul. But that was then. God does not act like that today in modern times. And my answer to that is you could not be more wrong. History is full of examples past the apostolic times where God has done sovereign and divine works of revival and awakening in various men and women throughout history. Men like Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, who single-handedly took on the church at the very risk of his life. And out of darkness, out of darkness, God brought forth the light of the Reformation, and out of darkness came the gospel of grace by one solitary man who dared to defy. Men like George Whitfield and John Wesley, while they were at Oxford University, the Spirit of God came down upon them in a prayer meeting. They were literally lit a fire by the Spirit of God descending upon them. And what resulted from that? Well, John Wesley and his brother Charles started what was the Methodist movement, the Methodist church, preaching the gospel, going all over the world preaching the gospel. Great revivals broke out. George Whitfield would be used by God to begin the Great Awakening that started in America and then went all across Europe, a great period of revival. Men like Jonathan Edwards, probably one of the greatest minds that this nation has ever had. Jonathan Edwards writes about his time when he was praying in the woods and the Spirit of God and the glory of God came down upon him. You might know Jonathan Edwards from his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And when he preached that sermon, people were weeping, people were falling down, people were confessing, people were, were just overwhelmed as God gave birth through the spirit of a mighty move of God, which was used also to spark in the Great Awakening. Men like David Brainerd, David Brainerd died, I think, at 27, 28, or 29, one of those years. He suffered with tuberculosis, but his desire was to reach the Indians. His ministry was not one of success, but David Brainerd went into the woods one day to pray, and he writes that the snow was up to his waist. And as he began to pray, he was so engulfed with the presence of God that his body gave up such heat that after an hour praying, all the snow around him had melted. Men like Jeremiah Lamphere may not be known to you, but Jeremiah Lamphere was responsible for the New York City prayer meeting, lunchtime prayer meeting. One man had a vision, and his vision was this, that we could bring people to come together and pray, and we'll do it at lunchtime. And it started on Fulton Street in Lower Manhattan. 
And the first day he showed up, he sat there the entire hour with five minutes left. One person walked in. The next day he had 10 people. Afterwards, it became so much to a point that they couldn't accommodate the crowds. What happened from there? From that place, revival spread in New York City, spread to New England, spread to Chicago, the Midwest, spread across the entire United States. The revival then went across to Europe, went to England, Scotland, and Wales. One man who said, I want to see believers come together. And pray. Jeremiah Lamphere is buried about three miles from my dad's church in Brooklyn in Greenwood Cemetery. And of course, great men like D.L. Moody. You know what D.L. Moody was? He was never a pastor. He never had formal training. You know what he did for a living? He was a shoe salesman. But God put upon him an anointing and a power. And he began the same thing like Jeremiah Lamphere, opening up theaters and having an hour Bible study as people would have lunch during in Chicago. And his words started going. And before you knew it, there were 100, then there were 200, there were 500, there were 2,000, 3,000. Well, D.L. Moody in 1871 is in New York City collecting money for the victims of the great Chicago fire when on Wall Street and Broad, The Spirit of God came down upon D.L. Moody. And these are D.L. Moody's exact words. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truth, yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience. If you should give me all the world, it would be a small dust in the balance. Church history is full of times of revivals and awakening, even in our times, that have taken place. We saw in Wales at the turn of the 20th century great revivals. We saw the Hebrides off the island of Scotland with a great preacher named Duncan Campbell where revival broke out across the isles that spread eventually across Europe. We saw Billy Graham in 1948 in the Los Angeles revival meetings that took place where hundreds and thousands were saved. We're seeing that taking place today in Iran and Muslim nations. We're seeing it in Colombia. We're seeing it in South America. We're seeing it in Vietnam, places where the gospel is banned. And yet God is doing great works of revival. We just gave you guys out a book a few weeks ago about the persecuted. I don't know if you've taken time to read it, but read some of the examples of what God is doing where the gospel isn't preached and the freedom of the gospel is not there. So I began this message with a quote from William Carey. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. It is my heart that we would be awakened from slumber, from the mere existence of the head knowledge of God, to begin to yearn for more of God and to know God more experientially. William Carey did. You know what William Carey did? He was an Englishman. He opened up the gospel to India. He sailed from Europe 
to India brought the gospel. He expected God to do great things, and in light of that expectation, he attempted great things for God by going to India and bringing the gospel to a place that had been shut out from the gospel. William Carey asked God, and God answered. And as we saw from the text today, Moses asked God, and how did God answer? Look at verse 19 of Exodus 33. God said this, and I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I am gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. God answered Moses' request. What will your request be to God? Do you expect great things for God? Will you attempt great things for God? Listen, on Wednesday night in our prayer group, I challenged our prayer group with this question, and I personally wrote out for myself eight things that came to my mind that I am going to ask God for, I am going to attempt to do for God. Eight great, great things, and I asked those on the prayer meeting, I said, will you do the same? But first on my list is that, Father, you would show me your glory. I want that deeper revelation of him. Listen, I make no bones over the fact that I pray for revival. I make no bones of it. Do I think it'll be a second great awakening in this country? Not from what I can see, but what's impossible with God. But I know that God could do revival in me. I know God could do revival in you. And I know that God could do revival in this church. But we have to seek him. Listen, We need a genuine, authentic, spontaneous move of God. We need it in this country. We need it right here. And we need it right here. So I'm calling on you to join me in this pursuit. And I can tell you with the utmost integrity and with biblical authority that God has so much more for those who pursue him. Will you join on the pursuit? The proof of the desire is in the pursuit. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Let's pray.